you would join me in your copy of God's Word, we're going to be going to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be going to Exodus chapter 32 and the narrative on the golden calf this morning. Years ago when I lived in Colorado Springs, I would attend an annual hot air balloon festival with some uh, other brothers from other churches and we would set up a, an easy up at this event as a way to hand out some gospel tracts and have some conversations as, with people at this particular event. And our tent was called Come Meet Mr. Nice Guy, which was not me, by the way. But it was to, to find out, you know, if, if you're a nice guy, because we would give you the good person test. And if you could, if you would just be willing to go through the good person test, you would get big money, which was uh, an oversized $100 bill that just so happened to have a gospel tract on the back. And we had a lot of great gospel conversations when we did this from year to year, and there's one that's always stood out in my mind of this uh, military man that I had spoken to. And as I started into the, the good person test with him, he quickly recognized this is some sort of religious thing about God, and this guy's going to tell me I'm bad or something like that. And he, he said, you know, look, I, I know where this is going. I, you know, I... You just need to understand this. I, I've, I've been in the military. You don't know what I've done, and God could never forgive me. And as he started to walk away, I just had these, you know, mixed feelings. Like, like how can you talk about God like that? Uh, he, he isn't like that. Th this guy needs to be set straight. And I don't know if it was right or wrong to respond like this, but I just said, don't walk away from me. <laughs> and then he turned around, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and I said, listen, listen I, I don't know what you've done, and I don't need to, but you need to know this. Now, God says in Scripture, come now and let us reason together. Even though your sin be like scarlet, you can be made white as snow. I said, if God has the power to speak the entire creation into existence just through his word, he can declare that you're forgiven and it be so. You can't out God's grace. And whatever sins you have committed, none of them put a limitation on his ability to save even you. I said, you can be saved if you repent and trust that God will do this for you. And he said, okay, I'll take one of those big $100 bills. <laughs> it's like, well, that was a good thing. You know, he didn't like hit me or anything. <laughs> and I don't know whatever happened to this guy, but he was at least willing to take a tract afterwards and to perhaps consider these things. And I thought back on this conversation as I meditated on Exodus 32 and the, the great sin that happens with this golden calf and how God's grace was greater than their sin. This was a moment when Israel was to be learning, this is who you are, and this is who God is, and this is what you really deserve, and this is the kind of salvation that you need, and it's available. The setting of this text is that God has already established a covenant relationship with these people. And this was to express that he desires to actually dwell with man in relationship like he did in Eden. Not just where you remain outside in the courtyard, but you can actually be brought into his tabernacle dwelling presence. But in order for a sinful man to approach Holy God, you need to go through all of that stuff with the priest and the altar in the middle. It was teaching, you need atonement. Uh, you need to be made at one with God through all the stuff that happens here so that you can have this kind of relationship. And Israel had been given this great privilege of tabernacle worship instruction, which we looked at last time in this text. And it was a, a model 
of what was and what is to be. It was a picture of Eden. It was a picture of creation. And it presented a, a very obvious tension in that God's there and we're here. We're separated, but at the same time we're separated from he's inviting us to come near which we don't know if this is a safe thing or a dangerous thing or how we're to process this. No other nation on the planet was given this specific privilege. And Israel was to be priest of this privilege, to be a conduit of connecting that Abrahamic blessing to all nations. And here we see the law doing what the law does. It, it points to God's holiness and it points out that man is sinful and that man needs a mediator between God and man. They need a God-man mediator. And it shows that God's plan isn't just some horizontal thing to where if you can pack up and move from one location to another, you know, everything will be okay. Everything will be better when you just get to this other place. But something greater needed to take place inside of these people. They needed to be changed in their heart relationship to God. The people need to be moved not just out of Egypt, but also moved to having a heart that actually fears God. And so this event at Mount Sinai shows that Sinai comes with accountability, you should fear God, and you should fear his word, because if you break one law or you approach him wrongly, you die. It was very clear that God is holy in his justice, and he will execute justice. Now, if you thought Egypt was a big problem, you know, look at Sinai. And if you think that Sinai is a big problem, look at the problem of the human heart and how it responds to God being gracious. Where the tabernacle wash, worship brought about glory and beauty, Sinai is presenting seriousness and accountability. And here in this text, we see what we as God's creatures truly deserve. And the problem with us is that we often think we deserve more. We don't think that our sin is all that serious, and therefore we don't think that grace is all that glorious. So the solution to that problem is we need to know what we deserve. And we also need to know what does God do for undeserving sinners like us to make our relationship with him right. This section in scripture helps us to understand the fullness of salvation as God continues to reveal his name and salvation in the book of Exodus. So as we approach the first few verses, I'd like to pray for this message. Our gracious Lord, as we come to your holy word, we pray that we would come with a, a healthy fear to tremble before it that we might not sin against you. Help us to understand you as you have revealed yourself. Help us to understand your salvation as you teach it to us in your word, and we pray that this would be profitable for the sake of your people, for the sake of sinners who do not know you, coming to know you through this text, and for your saints to have your grace magnified before your eyes, that they would love you even more for the gracious grace which you show us every day and will show us for eternity. Amen. Right, beginning Exodus 32, verse 1, the text reads, Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings where, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
And Aaron looked and built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, you can see the people's assessment. This, you know, Moses has delayed in coming down from the mountain yeah, after the tabernacle instruction and such had given. Now, it had not been very long. <laughs> uh, this is telling on the people in the situation is that they were impatient. They were already being given a great gift, but they got tired of waiting to see the realization of it. They wanted it to be immediate. So they thought, God isn't doing this fast enough, so let's do it our own way. Let's do it faster and according to our own heart. Now, the law should have been fresh on their minds, and they should have been thinking, well, there's only one God. We're not to, supposed to make graven images. But this is a, a text that we want to consider it in light of the Ten Commandments, which have already been given to these people. Now, the people had just previously assembled to receive the Ten Commandments. And now they're getting together again just shortly after that to break every single one of them. And there's the irony of Aaron. You remember Moses thought, I need somebody else to speak for me because yeah, I'm just not that good at this sort of stuff. Now, you see what's actually happening here is that Aaron is reversing his role in speaking for God to speak for a false god. And what God is showing Moses in this event is that he never needed Aaron. Like, look at this guy. This guy's the ultimate pushover. And you're seeing in this text a, a corporate apostasy. You're seeing everybody as a, a group of people choosing to turn away from God. And they're doing that and saying, make us gods. You know, they're not looking at the creator God, but they want to create gods for themselves. Now, what you see with Israel here is that they had been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt hasn't been taken out of them yet. And what the law is doing is it's pointing that fact out. It's pointing out you know, the heart to worship multiple gods and to make them yourselves is inside of you. It's like, how do you know? He's like, well, here's a test. Let's see how you respond to it. These people, they want gods, not the one true God, not Yahweh. So they gather together to break the first commandment with gods who will go before us. What they're saying in this is that they want a Yahweh substitute. You know, not just him, but in their minds, they're honoring him by putting some idols before him and some other gods that will also go before them with him. They also misunderstood not only God, but they misunderstood Moses as the man who brought us up. Now, when you read back through Exodus, you find that Moses didn't do this. <laughs> you know, Yahweh was the one who had brought them up. And so they're rejecting Yahweh and they're misunderstanding Moses. When you read through the book of Exodus, the, the word brought is only used of Yahweh. The whole time. It's never used of Moses. God is the creator and controller of everything in history, not Moses. The Exodus happened because of Yahweh, not Moses. So practically, they're functioning as atheists relative to Yahweh. And what you see with these people is that they're blind, they don't see. Nobody ever mentions seeing what happened at the Red Sea. So it's like, oh, Red, the Red Sea thing happens, and they're like, there's nothing to drink. I wish I had something different to eat. <laughs> like, did you just see what happened? And then they also say of Moses, they say, we do not know what has become of him. Now, just previous to this, Yahweh had called up Moses, and everybody heard it, and they were scared to death. But what you're seeing is they do know. They know what has become of him. They, they heard it, but the problem is they are deaf. They're denying that Yahweh ever spoke and that they ever heard anything from him. 
They're so blind that they can't see Yahweh's presence right in front of them. They're so deaf that they can't hear his booming voice before them. Even if a miracle was done before them, it wouldn't cause them to believe. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, even though it's been miraculously attested to them right in front of them. Trusting in Yahweh should be a no-brainer unless you've been given over to the lust of the impurities of your heart. This is like a Romans 1 sort of situation. Or in Romans 1 we read, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And as Israel desired to do this, Aaron responded to them by telling them to tear off the gold rings that were in the ears of their wives and sons and daughters. And Aaron, who was supposed to be the voice of God, becomes the the voice of paganism. The one who was supposed to be the messenger to Pharaoh has become a messenger for Satan. And you're starting to see something about what kind of people are these? You know, as this plot unfolds, it's giving us a perspective on mankind, of sinners. And we're seeing these people are stubborn. They're a stiff-necked people. They're locked into their depravity. They're like a mule with its heels dug in. You know, the problem with an old dog is you can't teach an old dog new tricks if the old dog is still the same old dog. The old dog has to be made a new dog. But not even miracles done before Israel, as we've noted, can do this for them. Now, what do you think is so significant and offensive about them using gold rings or rather misusing this gold which had been given to them and what was the gold supposed to be used for we went back through the tabernacle instruction there's a whole bunch of gold stuff in it and the gold stuff was all a reminder and a teaching tool about everything in creation is meant to reflect back God's likeness to himself and You also want to remember, these people got this gold from somewhere, which was back in Exodus 3.22. It says, But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Now you see this gold stuff was a gift from God that would remind them of his redemption of them. And it was to then be used in the tabernacle as a way to reflect back what God's redeeming love was like. Uh, You could think of these gold rings. They were supposed to be a designated gift, a designated gift for a particular purpose. Now, you can think about when a a designated gift is given for a specific purpose, what if that designated gift is used for a different purpose? What do we call that? We call that stealing. So what these people did is they, they stole God's gold and they stole the thing that was meant to give him glory and the thing that they were supposed to use to give an image of what their, their God was like to the nations. But instead they used it to, make a reflection of themselves and the gods that they created. Aaron's idea, you know, the people, they say that they want to make some gods. And Aaron says, guys, I have a great idea. Let's steal from God. 
Nobody pressured Aaron to do this. It was actually his suggestion. As we've mentioned, this developing plot, it it gives us a perspective on sinful man, not just these sinful people, but sinful people like us. We get this perspective that sin is absolute insanity. Sin is insanity. It's the most shocking covenant treachery imaginable. Sin is appalling. It's stupid all the time, every single time. This also, in a way, serves as a reminder to to not put certain leaders on a pedestal or specifically the leaders of Israel where you think, well, they can never do anything wrong. Well, read the Bible. They do lots of things wrong in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't suppose that certain leaders can't do wrong. Instead, presuppose that they're like you. They're sinners with a greater proclivity to sin than we could ever understand. The heart is more deceitful than we could ever comprehend. But in the context of great sin, we're going to see the greater grace of God highlighted in a forgiveness that's extended to sinners, even sinners who are treasonous against God, even sinners who are glory thieves. Now, lest you think that this is just a few bad seeds in the crowd of a bunch of basically good people, read verse 3. It says, all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This is all the people. This was a a comprehensive sin. This is a display of the the depravity of man and his total inability to believe in God and to actually listen to him. Sin has affected every aspect of man's being. It's affected his thinking, his affections, and his actions. There isn't a part of man that isn't tainted by sin in some way. So all sinned and all fell short of glorifying God the way that he had instructed them. And with eagerness, fashioning their own gods to worship. Which brings us back to Aaron in verse 4. He took these things from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool. This is the same word that we read back in Genesis 22-22. Where Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. But now what we see here is Aaron is fashioning a false covenant relationship, a a false sort of marriage to a false deity rather than to the true God, which he had taken from the people to make into a golden calf. What we see here is that we're reminded that God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. Aaron and the people were not honoring their creator-deliverer as they might have thought. Because remember, they said they were doing these things to Yahweh. But instead of doing these things to Yahweh, they were breaking all of his commandments, which God foresaw was going to happen. Well, what other commandment was broken here? Well, the second one, you you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make a graven image. And so their response is, let's make one. And the way that they, these leaders respond to them is to say, these are your gods, O Israel. Here's a total replacement of Yahweh in the name of Yahweh, which robs him of glory. You might recall how Israel wrestled the most with the commandments that had the most details to them which are the second and the fourth, the not making an idol and to keep the Sabbath. But you see, they didn't want God. They wanted idols. They didn't want uh, his rest. They wanted something else to give them satisfaction and rest in life and for it not to be him, which we see in establishing not only them making an idol in the place of God, but also a feast in place of the Sabbath. Verse 5, 
ends with Aaron making a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. This was their wrong way of seeking to honor his authority over them. You might recall the fifth commandment, which has this idea of honoring human authority, such as parents, as a horizontal way of carrying out that vertical relationship of honoring God. And here Aaron is perverting honoring authority. He's abusing and misusing his authority to lead others to dishonor God. And I want you to notice that what he's offering to them sounds like all of the right stuff. Because they thought, oh, when we worship him, we're going to have an altar. We're supposed to have a feast. We're supposed to use the name of Yahweh. I mean, all of this stuff must be right. But it's a counterfeit, which counterfeits have to look like the real thing in order to actually deceive people. And so they build an altar, which was a counterfeit of tabernacle worship. And Aaron declares a feast to Yahweh, which is a counterfeit for the Sabbath, which is not just breaking the fourth commandment, but also the third because they're using the Lord's name in vain because they're not living out the life that he has called them to. Uh, They were to be holy unto the Lord. They were to be set apart to him alone, but instead they're setting apart Yahweh among the gods that they had made for themselves. Now, this counterfeit and sounding like the real thing uh, allowed them to deceive themselves into thinking, well, we're obeying all of the commandments. I mean, look, we have an altar, we have a feast, we use the name of Yahweh, we're doing all of the right stuff, but they were doing that to suit their own sinful passions and carry out a self-styled sort of worship. We have to recognize about ourselves that we have the capacity to do stuff like this. Uh, We can be deceived into thinking that we're keeping God's commandments while we're actually breaking them in the name of doing them. Self-deception isn't merely a reality for lesser people or those other people that you know. Uh, It's a feature of all of humanity, which includes you, which should bring us in that moment when somebody comes alongside us to help us see that there might be a particular sin that we're committing. And we think, well, I would, I would never do that. Well, maybe we should be more suspicious of ourselves rather than the one who's trying to come alongside us and to help us to see something because we have the capacity to be self-deceived. Verse 6 continues in saying that on the next day they rose early and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play now the burnt offerings you know this sounds like the right kind of stuff to be doing but these were counterfeit burnt offerings you know this was and the burnt offerings represented total dedication to god but they're giving total dedication to other gods and the peace offerings were to be about the fellowship that can be had with god but now they have this counter counterfeit fellowship with false gods and false teaching. It's showing instead that what they're dedicating themselves to and fellowshipping with is the serpent ultimately and in sin. These particular offerings were the ones that were to be the offerings which inaugurated their relationship to their Redeemer But now instead they're choosing to use those same things to begin a relationship with demonic false gods while using the name of Yahweh. And it says that what they did in all of this was they they ate, they drank, and they played. Which these words of eating and drinking and sexual immorality is what that's getting at here, exposes the things that the heart covets the most. You know, this is breaking the the 10th commandment. It's coveting different food than God has given you, different drink than God has given you, and different uh, ways to express covenant faithfulness in the world than God has given you. Covetousness, at the heart of it, is a desire for what is unlawful. It's a desire for something different than what God has given you. It's greed (coughs) greed for different food, uh, different drink, different 
play, a day that's different than this day, circumstances that are different than these. Now, with that word play in the, in the text, the details of what actually is carried out are spared us, but the word is used of sexual deviance and tied into this idea of coveting. What's happening here is they're coveting not only their neighbor's house and gold in particular, but also their neighbor's wife, slaves, animals, and other things belonging to their neighbor. They were exchanging the truth of God for lies, which resulted in being given over to all sorts of covetous sexual deviance. Every commandment gets broken in this chapter. You see this even when Aaron later explains what happens as he bears false witness after drinking at the table with the father of lies. You also see that Israel's going to be guilty of murder because they're going to bring righteous judgment on themselves and bringing everybody in together for this particular action. Well, what do you think? Can Israel change on their own? Do they have the ability to just turn around and turn to God and start walking in the right way? I think we learn something about the sin nature of man. Man is totally unable to come to God. This is like what we read about in Romans 3 when it says, you know, no one is righteous. It's like, well, how do you know? It's like, look at, well, look in the mirror, but also look in Exodus 32. It says, you know, no one is good. You know, no one understands. No one seeks for God. You know, everybody is totally unable to come to God in their own volition. And on top of that, they're also totally uninterested. They're blind, they're deaf, they're stiff-necked, and they're hard-hearted. Israel can't change on their own or bring themselves to God. Which all of this is pointing out that the exodus has to be more than just a horizontal move from one place to another. It's pointing out there's a need for a greater exodus to happen. We need something vertical to happen, where men aren't just moved from one place to another, but they're moved into a reconciled relationship with God. The actual exodus can't work unless God deals with the problem, because these people can't deal with it themselves. He's going to have to be gracious to them and make those who are dead in sin alive to him. A sort of resurrection is going to have to take place if these people are going to live out a reconciled relationship with God. Picking up in verse 7 together, the text reads, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may consume them and I will make you a great nation. At this point, Israel has practically disowned any association with their creator, redeemer, Yahweh, God. And to make the disowning and disassociation clear, God refers to them, to Moses, as your people. He doesn't say my people, but he says, your people, which he's kind of mocking their statement, but also trying to get Moses to start thinking a certain way about this situation. What's being highlighted here is the severity of the separation of these people from God. He's not calling them my people at this point, but your people. Now, the sons of Israel, as you can see, they're, they're not like the Hebrew midwives that we read about in the beginning of Exodus who actually feared God and obeyed him. 
they're actually like what Moses thought they would be like. He said, well, God, when I go and talk to them, they're not going to believe this stuff. Well, Moses knew that because he knew something about himself and he had spent a lot of his life around these people. So these people who had assembled to break all of the Ten Commandments that they had graciously been given, you know, soon after they were given to them, they have this backwards way of worshiping the God who delivered them. This is the context in which the law is established. Great privilege was given to these people, but in, in the context of great privilege, what do they do? Great sin. What you see about Israel is they haven't changed a bit. Uh, something greater than the ten plagues needs to happen. Something even greater than the Red Sea needs to happen. The exodus needs to be more than just horizontal. And so you see, this exodus isn't complete. More needs to be done. And so the law points to the need for something horizontal and vertical, which is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the thing which Passover was to represent, to point them forward to the suffering servant who would suffer in their place and save them from their sin malady. The Exodus anticipates a further and greater development of the Exodus, where it's not just being moved out of a place, but your heart for that place being removed out of you as well. The removal of the love of the world. Now, Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. They were to be a picture to all other nations of what a nation was supposed to, to look like. But they weren't doing that, and the situation was a dire one. And so God in love commands Moses to quickly go. Go down at once. God acts quickly, and he, he sends a mediator and refers to them as your people, which in one sense he's pointing out the misunderstanding of the Israelites, but also Moses is in this place of being a mediator. He was put in the place of doing something for them. And he points out to Moses, they're turning aside, they're separated from me. He says, what are you going to do about it, Moses? And so he's thrusting upon mediator Moses to act and to do something. And Yahweh gives his assessment on this situation. He says, I've, I've seen what these people are like. Uh, they're the Genesis 6 kind of people in which the intentions of their, their heart are wickedness continually. Uh, these are the, the Tower of Babel kind of people who have these building tendencies to erect things in dishonor of me. This is a stiff-necked people. And in God's assessment, he says to Moses, now let me alone. Now, do you think that Yahweh really wanted Moses to, to leave him alone? Or do you think he wanted him to say, well, no, God, I can't leave you. I mean, we, something has to be done, and you're the only one who can intervene. And I think the, this kind of language is doing the same thing like when, when somebody says, well, like, hold me back, or, you know, I'm going to do something here. It's like, well, you actually want them to do something, you know. You don't want them to, to actually stop you. And so you see there's a, this threat of destruction, which is it's designed to engage Moses' heart in the role that God has called him to. It's to uh, appeal to the sacrificial love of a mediator to act and to say, I'll, let me stand between. Let me stand between God and man and do something to bring them together. We see here the present sin requires a present mediator, not somebody who's at a distance, but one who is with a people. And this sin has to be dealt with, but how is it going to be dealt with? You see, God's forcing the issue with Moses. It's got to be dealt with. They deserve judgment, and judgment has to be carried out. So how is this going to happen? So he's pushing the issue with sin and the need for a mediator to get Moses to act, and that's exactly what he does. You see this in verse 11. It says, Then Moses entreated, The favor of Yahweh his God, and said, O Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people 
whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and you said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken. I will give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. So Yahweh relented concerning the harm which he said he would do to his people. You see here what happened was Moses did exactly what God wanted him to do. He wanted to get this guy to entreat. He wanted to get this guy to pray. He wanted to get this mediator to actually mediate. And this is what Moses does. He says, God, why, why should the Egyptians? He said, you're the one who brought them out, not me. These are not my people. These are your people. You have to do something about this. And your name is at stake in all of this. Why should the Egyptians speak and say all this bad stuff about you? Because it's not true. And so he appeals to God to hallowed be your name. Uphold your glory. Uphold your faithfulness to your covenants. This was a prayer of Moses saying, God, your will be done. And Moses is praying in light of God's character and covenant. When he says, remember Abraham. Now, this isn't that God forgets things and needs to be reminded like oh Abraham you know I, I forgot about them Moses is the one who needs to remember not God but what he's appealing to and saying remember he's saying God forward what you said you were going to do and you have to remember the promise ends with the word forever so it can't stop here it has to go forever and it says in verse 14 uh, Yahweh relented this is one of these sort of uh, translational conundrums which we're not going to get super nerdy here but we are going to talk about it a little bit. Now, some of you might see in your text that you know, Yahweh changed his mind or Yahweh relented. Now, as you look in this text in the context, you see God has always planned for Israel's survival. You know, that, that was not something that was ever going to change. He was always going to build up this nation to be a blessing to all other nations. Therefore, he cannot destroy them because of his promises. Otherwise, you can't have a tribe of Judah from which the Messiah comes as God has promised, and then God would be a liar and his whole plan would have failed. Now, this verb that's translated relented is the word Nahum. Now, you know this guy. It's one of those minor prophets that, you know, you often just flip past in your Bible and they're hard to find. Now, Nahum, it's a Hebrew word that you know, and it actually never means you know, changed his mind. This is just something we inherited from the King James translation of the Bible, which is trying to make sense of the context because you're seeing, you know, as a Bible translator, God is saying that he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it. So I guess we'll say he changed his mind. You know, they're trying to make sense of it. But this word, what it, it, it can mean, some of the possible meanings, is it can mean he was satisfied could also mean he was comforted. It could mean that he was resolute in doing what he had always planned to do. So I think that last option fits the context the best. Is it's communicating God was resolute in his justice. You know, God was resolute in to, to continue to carry out exactly what he had always intended to do all along. But on the human side, it looks like God relented. But we see that actually what has happened is that the unchanging God hasn't changed in his character, he hasn't changed in his will, but rather what he's doing is he's effecting a change in Moses to get him to respond to God's unchangingness. He said, well, God, you can't do this because like, you don't change in your justice and you don't change in your promises. So the unchangeable God didn't change a bit in his character or promises, but he did effect a change in Moses to pray in light of God's justice and covenant. So mediator Moses makes an appeal for God to be just and the justifier. That's what he's praying for here. He said, God, vindicate your holiness and make holy because you're the only hope. 
And so what Moses as a mediator wants to do is he wants to uphold everything that the law is pointing to. What's the law is pointing to? He wants to uphold God's holy justice, his rightness, but also to uphold that it points out that man is sinful and needs to be justified by another. He can't do it for himself. He needs a mediator who can provide for him what is needed to bring this relationship back together. He was recognizing God's wrath must be satisfied, but his covenants must also be upheld through a mediator. God's salvation plan must be mediated to to man to uphold holy justice, to provide a satisfactory mediator for sin. And God is going to do what the law points to, which is man's need for a mediator between holy God and sinful man. Which raises the question, well, how exactly should God exact justice? How do we think about how people who deserve judgment, but there are people that like can survive, but judgment has to be carried out, but people can be redeemed somehow. And Moses, as he's thinking this through, he says, remember Abraham, that's how this works. Remember the land, remember the seed, remember the the blessing, the, the promise. He said, remember the substitute sacrifice of a ram for Abraham's son, his only son, Isaac. Can Moses, as a mediator, mediate? Like he's recognizing this has to happen, but can he do it? Let's pick up in verse 15. It says, then Moses turned and he, he went down from the mountain And the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Then Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing, I hear. (laughs) You see, Moses, he goes down with these two tablets, which they're not like the ones you see in the, the Christian bookstore where you have like the love of God on one of them and then loving your neighbor on the other one, but they're two full copies and the, the tablets function more like a, a bill of sale and a receipt. It's like God saying, you know, I'm charging and you're paying. You know, and, and here's the proof. They're right here. And the wages on this receipt are death. You see, what God's going to uphold is he's the judge who is charging. He's the one who's taken an account. And Israel is upholding their end through their deserving of the death penalty and recognizing this is what must be paid. And in the confusion of Israel's sin, Joshua thought he heard a war going on and Moses heard singing. And irony is there, there was a war against God and singing to that which wasn't God. Verse 19 Now it happened as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. When Moses broke these tablets, he was... He was breaking what had already been broken. He said, the transaction is canceled. The item's been returned. The relationship is canceled because you've chosen to give it to another. This is where we learn the nature of Sinai. People always come back here to remember, this is the place where covenant is broken. But it was also used as an object lesson of what this calf really was, when Moses turned it into a truly caffeinated beverage. <laughs> so here's the object lesson. He's like, what, what is this calf actually? He says, drink it, and when you see it come out of you, that's what it is. 
This is what your idols really are. They are excrement and waste, which this worldview understanding is perhaps why we have archaeological evidence that King Josiah had altars of false gods repurposed into toilets. I was humored by that. Continuing on in verse 21. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. Indeed, they said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Now, was this the whole truth and nothing but the truth? You know, people still do this sort of thing today. It's like, you know, what just happened? (laughs) Well, sin and delusion, we see, went all the way to the top of Israel, even all the way to the high priest Aaron. Again, a reminder, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Moses is shocked and appalled by this whole thing, and he confronts Aaron, saying, did these people do something against you that you would do this so that they would get the death penalty? And this wasn't just any sin. This is great sin. This is the sin of apostasy, which is not just falling away, but turning aside, uh, choosing to totally reject God after you've enjoyed great privileges from him. And the way that Aaron responds, he says, well, you know, it's not my fault. It's the evil people you left me with. You know, they came up with the idea and this calf just showed up. Well, I wonder what Moses thought about this comment when he wrote down Exodus 32, 4. And Aaron took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. Like, Aaron, the the Lord just had me write down a really interesting thing in the Bible today. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to tell me? Trying to hide your sin behind a statement like, you know, I, I don't know, it just happened is is as effective as trying to hide from the all-seeing God while wearing fig leaf underwear behind a bush. Now, it's not going to work, and it obviously looks like something is wrong. Picking up in verse 25, it says, Now Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. So Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Every man among you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Be ordained today to Yahweh. For every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. These people were out of control, as the text had mentioned. And what was at stake was the glory of God's name among the nations. You know, they were bringing shame upon themselves in which the, their enemies would look upon them and see a misrepresentation of Yahweh. They would see these people are like us. You know, they're actually worse than us. They were shaming God's name before the nations. The problem here is that Israel's actually anti-Israel, You know, their worst enemy isn't outside of them, it is them. And think about how painful and costly this day was. Levites were to execute capital punishment on brother, friend, and neighbor. 
this wasn't a 3,000 were added to the congregation sort of day, but a 3,000 fell. And being ordained into ministry for these priests involved embracing the blood and gore of all sorts of sacrifice and hardship. And the message was made clear to all involved. Somehow through bloodshed, blessing can be brought, but blood must be shed. In other words, atonement can be made and must be made for sinners. But who can do this? Who can atone for so great a sin with so great a salvation? Verse 30 begins to answer that question. 32:30. Now it happened on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, but now I am going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. And they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go, guide the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then Yahweh smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Moses understood not only that someone must mediate between holy God and sinful man, but somebody has to make atonement for sin. There has to be a man substitute for man. And the law instruction points to a mediator who can deal with the sin problem and the death problem. And Moses understands this. So he says, I'll do it. I'll be the guy. I'll be the substitute. Blot me out of your book in their place. He was willing to be a substitute to satisfy justice so that others could be justified. But the problem here is that Moses is too weak to do this. We're going to need somebody greater than Moses. He's right to understand this is how atonement works. It is that somebody else can satisfy judgment in your place, but you're not the guy. It's like you're getting the point, but it's not you. And so we see this, we refer to this concept as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal because there's a penalty. You've broken God's law and you deserve to be punished. It's substitutionary because God will accept a substitute, somebody who can take that judgment upon themselves, but it has to be a substitute that can take on eternal wrath and give eternal life, that at-one-ment can be made with God and atonement through this one being. But for that to work, this person's going to have to be God and man in order to mediate this reconciling relationship. We see in verse 33 that sin is individual. They couldn't say that, well, so-and-so made me do it. You know, each man was responsible for his actions. And so there's this tension that God says they'll individually be blotted out. But at the same time, he's telling the mediator to, to go and guide these people. Now, Moses' mediation and praying and offering himself as a substitute, in a sense, it worked, but it doesn't work at the same time. You say, well, yes, it worked because it teaches the need for a mediator. It teaches how the mediator's role is going to work, but it also doesn't work because he can't be the guy who's blotted out in their place because Moses deserves to be blotted out for his own sin. He needs that mediator just like everybody else does. He needs one who's without blemish and without sin like the Passover lamb. 
Now, this need points to or it guides toward a particular one, which God says, behold, my angel. It's like, well, how does this mediation stuff work? It's like, look at, look at my angel. The one who goes before you, the one who fights for you, the one who intercedes for you. It's, it's that one. It's not that there's other gods that go before you. It's my angel, my, the one who was present at the almost sacrifice of Isaac event. So you need that angel to show up and to provide a substitute for you, or rather be that substitute for you as redemptive history will unfold. And so we see penal substitutionary atonement. It doesn't work with Moses, but it is how things are going to work. Any man who sins must die for his sin, which he's committed against God. And Moses is a man that also must die for his sins, therefore he can't be the substitute. Uh, This can't work because with Moses, because he's just a man and he's not the God-man. And so the law is teaching people, you need a penal substitutionary atonement. You need a God-man mediator. You need my angel. You need the one who was there at the almost sacrifice of Isaac event. You need one that's a greater than Moses mediator who can actually deal with your sin and conquer death, which is exactly what Peter preached in Acts 3.19 when he said, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be blotted out in order that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus The Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to his successors onward also proclaimed these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Commenting on that text, Puritan Stephen Charnock comments, Though great sins are occasions of great grace, yet sin does not necessitate grace. Who can tell whether ever God would have shown mercy to Paul had he had done that against knowledge which he did ignorantly. Repentance must first be, see the order, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 3.19. First, repentance and conversion, then justification. This grace is only given to penitent sinners You know not whether you shall repent, but you may know that if you do not repent, you shall be damned. As there is infinite grace to pardon you if you repent, so there is infinite justice to punish you if you do not repent. End quote. You cannot separate God's grace from God's justice without fashioning false gods to worship in place of the one true God. Just as we heard from Psalm 99 and the scripture reading this morning, O Yahweh, our God, you answer them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. You cannot separate them two truths from one another. Now, as you've listened to this message, you might think of a a great sin that you've committed in life. But you see, there's greater grace for the humble from a God of jealous love. So we read about in James 4. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. 
But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we consider this text this morning, let us be humbled not only by the reality of the capacity that we have to commit great sin, but also of the reality of God's capacity to give a greater grace to sinners. Just as Thomas Watson wrote, the humble Christian looks with one eye upon God's grace to keep his heart cheerful and with another eye upon his sin to keep it humble. With that thought, let's close in prayer as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, we pray that from this text you would help us to grasp something of the greatness of your gracious love that as you show how dark our sin truly is, that you would show how bright the light of your grace truly is. That as you point out how truly wicked we have been and can be, that you would point out how incredibly gracious you have been to us. That we would recognize that we have been loved much and that we would boast in you as the forgiver of our sin and that you would help us to walk in ways that honor the death of Jesus and the victory and example which he gives us. Amen. Speaking of the events we have uh, heard in Exodus 32 about Israel's history, Psalm 106 comments on that. I'm going to close with reading a section of Psalm 106. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry of lamentation, and he remembered for them his covenant, and he relented according to the abundance of his loving kindness, and he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Yahweh our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and revel in your praise. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise Yah. And all the people say, Amen. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.